reading of God's word. Our reading today is from uh, Psalm chapter 89, verses 1 through 18. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all, through all generations. I will declare that, you love, that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too, in the, assembly of, uh, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than uh, all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord, God Almighty? You, Lord, are the mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you, uh, you still them. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours, and yours also the earth. You, the earth. you founded the world and all that is in it. You created uh, the north and the south. Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne, and love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate uh, your righteousness. Uh, for you are their glory and strength, and by your favor you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and ask your blessing on this word. Thank you, Lord, that you speak to us through your word. Thank you that you speak to us, that you're real, that we can trust you and we can know you. We ask, Lord, that you would just bless the remainder of our time together as we unpack um, some wonderful truths about who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're excited this morning to um, uh, officially launch into a new sermon series. We just finished preaching through the Song of Solomon. I hope that you were greatly encouraged by that word, and I, I hope that um, perhaps if you're new and you didn't really hear much of it, you can go to our website and you can hear all those sermons. Basically, the Song of Solomon is about love, marriage, romance, and also the greater romance, what God desires with his creation, with his people, um, to love and cherish us. Uh, so I hope that you can be encouraged by that. Um, if you haven't checked it out, I, I trust it will be useful to you. But over the next seven to eight weeks, we're going to be in a sermon series called Basically Jesus. And Basically Jesus, basically, is an attempt to define uh, what are the basics of Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian? What do Christians believe? What do we, why do we think the way we think? That's a scary thought, right? Um, so we're going to aim to define these things, the basic beliefs and commitments of the Christian faith and life. Um, what makes a Christian a Christian? And how, do, how does, does what we believe direct our vision and our mission, our values, the way that we live our lives from day to day? So we're going to discuss some things that you'll see on the screen. Um, this week we're going to talk about God. That's the first uh, sermon in the series. Um, what does the Bible say about God? Um, who is God? Does he exist? Um, what does the Bible say about the Bible? What is the Bible? Why is it important to us? About humanity. 
Um, you and I, is there a problem that needs to be remedied? Um, who is Jesus? Um, why is he such an important figure and character that stands out as the central figure and character of all the Bible and the Christian faith? Uh, what is the good news? Um, the good news being the gospel of Jesus Christ. What, how, how do we define that? Why is that so important? Who's the Holy Spirit? Um, we hear about the Father, we hear about the Son, but we don't hear much about the Holy Spirit. Who's that? And also life after death, eternity. Where do we go when we die? Right? So these are some of the central sort of beliefs um, that make a Christian a Christian. And I hope that if you've been a Christian for a while, this will encourage your faith, uh, maybe spur you, spur you on to learn more and to grow more in your faith. I have some resources that you'll see on screen too that hopefully that you can use, that if you go through this together with us, um, that you can start learning more. Obviously, I'm doing one sermon, one sermon on God, right? That's God in, in 30 minutes because today is, is the, that sermon, right? So, like, um, I only can say so much about this, and volumes upon volumes have been written. Um, I have all these books up here in the pulpit. If you want to, like, thumb through them after, after church, I'll leave them on the, on the stage so that you can see them. Basic Christianity is basically about the gospel and who Christ is and what the good news is. It's very simple, like beginner sort of book. It's excellent. Know what you believe is maybe like the next level. It deals with all of these topics that I presented to you this morning in a, in a more thorough way that I'm going to be able to in one sermon. Um, Bible Doctrine um, for the Brave is by Wayne Grudem. And I say for the brave, it's not very difficult to follow, but it's just much thicker. You, if you can see through the pulpit, it's the thickest one in that, in that patch. So it's very thorough. Um, it will answer most of your questions about Christian theology. Reason for God um, is an excellent book by Tim Keller. It, it basically deals with why we think this, that it's not insane to believe all these things. It gives you a basic, basically a reason for your faith. It defends why do we believe in God? Why do we actually believe the Bible it says what it is? That Jesus is who he says he is. Is this just crazy? Is this like another Santa? Like, who are we? What are we doing here? Reason for God answers a lot of those questions. Knowing God by J.I. Packer, I would say, is um, similar to basic Christianity. Um, just a lot more robust. Um, a little heavier. So those are really great resources that you can use to just kind of add. Um, if you want one or two of them, you can go online and find them. Um, you could even borrow one of mine. Except, um, excuse me, you can borrow one of mine if you like, too. Um, and, and they're really good resources. I think they'll complement well what we're going through. Now, in the Song of Solomon, if I can go back to that, we're done with that series, but I was encouraging you all to nurture a passionate love relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why God created, it's one of the reasons God created marriage. So he can, so we can learn what he wants with us, a union, a love relationship with our good God, to nurture that love. But how do you nurture a love for our good God? Well, one of the ways that we do it um, is simple. You can't love who you don't know or what you don't understand. So that, that's one of the reasons why we're going through this. We want you to learn who God is and how he's revealed himself to us in his word. We want to build off of what perhaps you already know. We want to advance it so that you can really know. Now, I've been married for 10 years in October. 
and the, thank you, um, the wife I know today, I know much more intimately and profoundly than I did the day I married her. And I love her more for it. Um, and, and that's God's good gift and grace to me, because I know that's not everyone's story. But, um, but I love her more for it. I really know her in a way that I didn't know her before. And for many of us, love increases um, as knowledge increases. Isn't that true? So this morning, we're going to go over basically God. Um, this is a monumental task to be able to talk about God and what the, what the Bible says about God <laughs> in one sermon um, might be um, an exercise in futility and maybe impossible, but I'll do my best. We're here, all of us are here, probably, most of us at least, are here having something to do with God, right? Like you wouldn't, you would be at Old Navy buying t-shirts or at Horseneck Beach with your feet in the ocean. If it weren't for God, you would not be here this morning, right? Chances are you're here this morning because of some idea that you got in your mind about God, about who he is. A.W. Tozer was a, was a, um, a, a very um, well-known pastor in the 20th century and scholar. He wrote, what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. Now, rewind time another 500 years, and you'll read a commentary. That is a book um, that explains um, different passages of Scripture in the Bible written by John Calvin. He comments on Jeremiah chapter 9. He says, To know God is man's chief end and justifies our existence. Isn't that incredible? you got to let that soak in. Your, your, your existence is justified by your relationship with and knowledge of God. Even, he says, even if a hundred lives were ours, this one aim would be sufficient for them all. The reason for this, the reason these men were so lofty in their language about knowing God was because, is because of, of a belief that's very simple. Without knowing God, this is the premise, if you don't know God, you will never know yourself. And if you don't know yourself, you will never know God. It's kind of, they work both ways. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Well, Calvin even admitted he's not even really sure. But the reality is, you can't know yourself if you don't know God, and you can't know God if you don't know yourself. See, that's how important it, it, this is. For you to know who you are, why you're here, you need to know God. No man can look deep within himself or woman can look deep within themselves without eventually having their thoughts turned to God. It's just that if you think deep thoughts long enough about who you are, you're going to be turned to God. When we examine our own self, when we examine our sense of unhappiness, of limitations, of our own ignorance, of even our selfishness, our good qualities versus our corruption, we're going to start to turn our minds to the source of that which is without limits, that is good and pure and lovely completely and perfectly when we know we aren't. You see, our minds just eventually turn to God. We don't really start to desire to know God, to know Him, until we first sense that we need Him. 
You can't start to know God until you sense that you need Him. And you'll never sense that you need Him unless you know yourself. When you really start to know yourself, you'll start to learn and realize that you need God. And you'll start going after Him. Yet, you never can really fully know yourself or your sense of need without knowing, seeing, and understanding on some level, on some basic level, the nature, the true nature of who God is. What I mean by this is to get a vision of God or, or yourself to, is to see the great chasm that exists between our nature and virtue and his nature and virtue. Does that make sense? When we really start, start understanding who God is and who we are, we'll understand the gulf, that wide chasm, that difference that exists between him and I, both in our morality and our goodness and our power and our wisdom. We thought we were this smart compared to God, right? He's up here, we're down there. As we know him and us, it starts doing this. It starts moving away from each other, right? Without a vision of God, we seem pretty smart. We seem pretty self-supporting. I can take care of myself. I'm pretty wise. I'm pretty good. You know, I've never killed anyone, right? I'm pretty virtuous. But when the light of the true God shines, when we really get a vision of him, we start to realize just how deep our darkness is. You say, oh, that's really dark and pessimistic. Well, it gets better, so just keep listening, okay? Isaiah chapter 4. When we start to see our light as compared to the light of God, our light seems like darkness. Isaiah chapter 24, the moon will be dismayed, the sun ashamed in the light of the Lord. What does that mean? You ever have a flashlight on a sunny day? Have you ever tried to even see it on the ground? It's virtually impossible. It's like not light. Because the sun is the greater light. The greater light in the room wins, doesn't it? That's what this is saying. All the light we think we have is as darkness. The sun is ashamed. The moon is ashamed. When we get the vision of God, we realize what light actually is. We thought we knew, but we don't. So to really know ourselves is to know God. And to really know God is to really know yourself. And that's why Tozer and Calvin and others had said, we believe about what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. So this morning, I want to introduce you to God. Welcome him. <laughs> who is this, Psalm chapter 89 and many other places, who is this like our God? Who is this like our God? The psalmist asks a question and begins to paint a picture of the nature and character of God as he really is, not as we have imagined him. Because God has revealed himself to us. He hasn't left us alone to make him up, to imagine what he might be like. That could only take us so far. You see, God has shown us who he is. Who is this like our God? Well, he begins to explain him in detail, not from his imagination, but because God had shown him directly. The Bible says that God spoke to Moses 
face to face. And men in the New Testament and women moved by the Holy Spirit of God were inspired. That is, God had revealed himself to them so that they would know what he's like. Basically, God. Let's talk about God this morning. God is immense. He is eternal. We can't put him in a cup. We can't describe him in one sermon. But I'll do my best. (laughs) Um, I'm going to talk about three things that God reveals to us in his word. God is present, he is personal, and he is perfect. God is present, he is personal, and he is perfect. You might have got a pen or a pencil, and you can take notes on your program on the back if any of this is interesting to you, okay? Um, So God is present. Let's talk about that. What I mean by present, I needed three Ps, so that was the best P word I could find. Um, what, What I mean by that is that God exists. God is real. He's not a figment of our imagination. Um, He is a real, actual being. And two clues demonstrate the reality of God's existence, that he is real. Um, Those are two clues, the clue of reason and the clue of revelation. And I'll explain to you what I mean by this. Let's talk about the clue of reason. The clue of reason concerns all the things, um, all the evidence of God's existence based on what we observe with our senses and with our reason. So if, in other words, if God never spoke to us, he never spoke to the prophets, the prophets he re- never revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ, he was just silent, which he hasn't been, but um, if he was, if he was silent, if he never gave us a word, we would still have a reason to believe that he exists and that he's real. Romans 1 confirms this um, in chapter 1, verse 19. It says, this is a New Testament book in, um, in the more towards the end of the Bible, it says, since what we may know about God is plain to them. In other words, you should be able to know that there is a God, not because we have a Bible or that because he spoke to Moses, but because you have eyes and ears and you can see around you. Since what we know about God is plain, because God has made it plain to them how has God made it plain that he exists? For since, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, are clearly seen in the things that have been made. So in other words, let's follow this logic, what it's trying to say here. Imagine yourself taking a hike, down in the Massasoit Park, or down the bike path right in Bristol. You're taking a little hike. You get off path. But bike path is beautiful, isn't it? But you see a little trail going down to the ocean. You get off path. You start walking down it. And all of a sudden, you see um, one of those Apple watches lying on the ground. Okay. Now, this isn't an Apple watch. But it's, it's a watch, right? That's, that's pretty cool. I can tell the time. And you say, I hope you can, because I want to get out of here soon. Um, You're walking along, you see an Apple Watch, you pick it up, and you think, wow, isn't it amazing how this thing just sort of made itself and is the product of chance? It must have been some rock that over time, you know, the waves beat against, and all of a sudden I have this complex machine that can tell me how many steps I'm taking 
that tells me what time it is, which direction is north. That connects to the internet, right? Oh, it plays music too. Isn't that incredible? You see, friends, we look, if we did that, we would pick up a watch, we would see it, and we, what would we presume? That this watch has an architect. Our logic, our reason would bring us to believe that some intelligent designer made this thing. You see, friends, what we know about the created universe is that even just the simple eyeball is much more complex than the watch on my wrist and even the Apple watch on yours. You see, when you look at the complexity of the creation around it, all of the things that sort of need each other to work, and a wonderful book that's a complicated book, but it's wonderful, it's called Darwin's Black Box. Um, and it describes in detail how things work. Little things need each other, like these microorganisms need this thing for it to work. Right? And it's just incredible. And he's arguing for the fact that um, all of these scream for an intelligent designer. Now, let me, let me um, say this to you in Acts chapter 14. Um, oh, before I get there, let me say this. I want to say it like this. Another way that we can reason that there is a God is because of the reality of our dependent life. And what I mean by that is... You're here for a reason. You didn't self-create, right? You didn't just exist for all eternity. You needed mom and dad to come together in the institution of holy matrimony, right? Have a little fun. And then out popped you nine months later. Isn't that true? So you didn't, you didn't create yourself. You are dependents. In philosophy, they call that contingence. You're a contingent being. And that's true, like, if I move that microphone, the reason it moved is because I moved it. It doesn't move itself. Something needs to move on us for us to be in motion. Does that make sense? You see, but if that's true, who moved my parents? Who moved their parents? And who moved my great-grandparents? You see my logic here? You go back far enough to even to the infinite microbe of slime that supposedly evolved into a monkey. Where did who moved on the slime? See, the point is there has to be a reason demands that there be a being that is being, that is life, that is not dependent on anything else for life. And we believe that that being is God. Thomas Aquinas called him the unmoved mover. He has life, and in Acts chapter 14, it's confirmed. Paul is speaking to philosophers in Acts chapter 14. For This is what he says to them. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. We have life because he is life. Does that make sense? You see what he's saying now? Therefore, since we are God's offspring, what he has put in motion, we should not think that the divine thing is like gold or silver or stone. In other words, we shouldn't think God is what we make him to be. Because we don't make God anything. God is who he is. Oh, wow, that reminds me of something in the Bible, Exodus 
chapter 20, chapter 10 through 20. I am who I am. Isn't that incredible? Paul says that what we believe about God matters. We should not think God is like this. Because God is this and not that. We can't make him up. That's what Paul is saying. As if we create him or design him. No, we come from him. He is the uncaused cause. He is the unmoved mover. He has life in himself. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. The scriptures affirm where our reason leads us. God is real. So that the Bible even says the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Now that sounds like harsh, like fighting language, doesn't it? The fool, you fool. And I've seen some foolish Christians say that to atheists. Please don't. That you're, you're a fool isn't exactly helping them listen to you. Okay? That the Bible isn't just insulting people. It's saying that it, you, if you really use the faculties of reason it would lead you to me. That's what scripture is saying, that it lacks wisdom that should issue forth from sense to conclude that there is no God. Okay? So these and many other clues I just gave you, like if, if there was a big stone marble right here, right, um, I just chipped off the first chip that will be the statue of David. Right? Okay, so there's one little chip, but it still looks like a big block to you. So that's okay. Um, But some of these resources will help you. But God is real. God is present. He exists. Number two, God is personal. Now, some people have said, okay, I'm with you. I believe that there is a God. But we really don't know who he is or what he's like. Right? We're natural. He's supernatural. We just can't know him. So because of this, God can't, can't be personally known or even understood, and, and he just is uninvolved with our lives. So it's almost as if you don't believe in him. It's, there's really no difference, right? Some people call themselves agnostics or deists. That's what these words are getting at. They believe that, yeah, there, there probably is a God, but we can't know him. Um, he's not interested in us, so it doesn't even really matter that he exists. We've we got to do our own thing anyway right? So, but in scripture, the way, that by, the, the way that God reveals himself to us is that he's not some cosmic force. He's not some kind of impersonal force like in Star Wars, like, you know, the, the bad force and the good force, right? Like that, it's not really a person. It's just sort of some thing that's out there that doesn't know our names or care about us. In scripture, God is a person. God is personal, And that's incredibly important and has tremendous implications to the way that we live our lives. But how do we know it? How do we know that God is personal? Well, in Scripture, the first clue that God is personal is that God reveals himself to be a plurality in a unity. In other words, we call this, theology has called this the Trinity. Have you heard of this? God is one God, but three in person. One God, but three in person. Now, this is, is mysterious. It's hard to understand, but it demonstrates that God is a person that loves, that has intention, that has a mind and a will like us. Those three persons are not the same p- people. 
but they are not three gods either. That diagram is a kind of a helpful way that, that people have used to describe this over the centuries. So the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, and vice versa. But there are not three gods. The Son is God, the Spirit is God, and the Father is God. They're a unity. They are one God. They cannot exist separately from each other, but they are not the same. Now, this is mysterious. It's a paradox. It's hard for us to understand. One plus one plus one usually equals three. But in this case, it's one. One plus one plus one equals one. <clears throat> so we need to assign this. A lot of people have tried to like illustrate this with like a water. It can be a gas, a solid, or a liquid, right? A lot of these analogies just sort of break down. I'm just content with saying this. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son, all that, right? But there are not three gods. And they are not each one-third God. So to, with their powers combined, they are Captain Planet, right? That's not how it works. Younger people will get that reference, right? So, so God is one God, but three in person. The Bible demonstrates this in Deut Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is called the Hebrew Shema. Shema in Hebrew just means listen, hear, obey. That's what Shema listen, means. Listen, hear, obey, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord, he is one. He is one God. Now, this is very amazing because of the words that are used. The titles of God, Lord, you notice too, Lord and God. Lord in Hebrew is singular. Now, in, our, in English, names aren't singular or plural. They're just names. But in Hebrew and Greek, by the way, they can be singular or plural. Okay? The Lord, singular, our God, plural, the Lord is one. The Lord, Yahweh, singular, there is one God. Elohim, plural, there's a plurality somehow in there. The Lord, our God, the Lord, he is one. The word one, very interestingly too, is a very unique Hebrew word. It doesn't mean like one microphone or one watch. It's, it, it's the word for like a group of things, one congregation, one bundle of sticks. The Lord, our God, the Lord, he is one. There is one God, but three in person. The, the New Testament makes that clear for us in Matthew 28, 19. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't that interesting? The name. Now, I ain't an educated man, but, well, actually I am. Um, but, like, the last time I checked, there were three names there. It, shouldn't it be the names? Baptize them in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The author intentionally uses the name, the one name. This is the name of God. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. Isn't that incredible? Matthew 28, 19 makes it clear to us. The Son possesses all the attributes of the Father, and the Spirit possesses all the attributes of the Son. You see, they all have the same qualities all throughout Scripture as we study who they are. It's true of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So, so what? Who cares? Well, the nature of God is a communal nature. He is interpersonal. He relates with himself. He didn't create you because he was lonely or bored or because he needed something to love. 
his love existed perfectly in himself. It was already communicated within himself, within his nature. You see, God, by nature, expresses himself to, to us as a personality that loves. Okay? But number two, God, God is a person not just because he's triune, but because he is the sustaining creator. And let me explain to you what I mean here. He, God sustains all things. In other words, he keeps your heartbeat beating. That implies intention and purpose, doesn't it? Abstract, non-personal things don't have intention or purpose. You see what I mean? It's just a thing that happens without purpose. You see, but if God in Scripture is the one that keeps us alive, then he is a person with intention and with purpose. God's creation is not God himself, but without God's care, we would not even exist. We wouldn't continue to exist. The Son, Colossians chapter 1, listen to this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him they hold together. You know what that means? That means that Christ is making my heart work all the time. That Jesus is making our orbit work and gravity work. He's holding it together. All the scientific laws and principles that we've learned, he is the one that is keeping those things consistent so that they work. That's why the earliest, Christian, uh, earliest scientists were Christians, because they understood that without a God, they couldn't know anything. It could just change, right? We can study and test because something is holding it together, making it work the way it works. So God is the sustainer. He keeps us. He holds us alive. But this, is the, this isn't the only thing. He, this, there's a third thing. God made us in his image. That's another clue that God is personal. According to scripture, God made you and me in his image. How many people know that whoever, let's go back to this analogy again, whoever made my watch made it for the purpose of telling time. Like they weren't trying to create a toaster, right? Or a car. Like they made it for the purpose of telling time. So the intention is communicated through the product. The intention of the mind is communicated through the product. So, if we could learn things about God, we can learn things about, I, I mean, excuse me, if we learn things about ourselves, we can learn things about God. In other words, if we can create, because we're made in his image, if we're like him, if we can create, that must mean he's a creator. If we can love, that must mean he loves. If we can forgive, that must mean he forgives. You see what I'm saying here? If we're a person, that must mean he is. Right? God has made us in his image, and in our very nature points to the fact that he is a person. 
In Genesis 1, God makes us in his image. In Colossians 1, he does that so that he might be head of his people. So in other words, so that he can love them and hold them together and lead them and guide them. This is incredibly intentional, and only people have intention. That's the unique privilege of humanity. The express purpose of our having been created by God is so that he would be our head, someone that loves us and that we love in return. Someone that we, how many people need your heads? You do, right? You need your head. Well, maybe not everyone in the room, right? We've gotten well long enough, maybe without one. But, but isn't it true? We need our heads. We need God. God is the head. Jesus Christ is the head. That means we need him. We love him and he loves us. He cares for us. A person implies purpose and what a purpose. God has blessed us in the heavenly realms for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be his children, his sons, in accordance with his pleasure and will and love. God is a person. He's not an abstract force. But lastly, number three, God is perfect. Isn't that good news? Each of the aspects of ourselves are limited. I have power, right? I, if I wanted to, I could lift up this pulpit, I think. I have, I have power, right? I, I, I can lift weights. I can run. I can ride a bike. There's certain things that I can do. Right? But my power is limited. There, there, there's, there's, for all of us, in the strongest man on ESPN can only lift a certain amount. Right? Our power is limited. My knowledge is limited. Right? I only know a certain amount of things, and then it ends. Right? But God is perfect. God's knowledge is without end. God's power is without end. There is nothing lacking that is in God that is lacking in us. That's what it means that God is perfect. Theologians have called these his perfections. The perfections of God. God is perfect. How is God perfect? Let's talk about a few ways. God is perfect in holiness. Ooh, religious word. I just dropped it on you. All right? It's kind of stodgy, but let's, let me explain to you what this means. Holiness in Scripture is the sum total of everything God is. Everything that he is. It means to be set apart, different. So, God is holy. He's different. He is not you, and he is not me. He is not that chair. He is not the rocks or the mountains or the trees. God is holy. He is different. He is above all. Right? The sum total of his perfections, he is holy. There is no one like him, even though we were created in his his image, we're just a part of his image. No one creature shares perfectly all that he is. And there are no limitations to his perfections. We're not him, and he is not us. So the psalmist says, who is like our God? Nobody. Nobody's like our God. Nothing is like our God. Once you start to think a thing or a person is God, you've been misinformed. There's no limitations to his perfections. And that's implied by the name that God gave to Moses. Moses asked, God, what's your name? And you know what God says? I am. Okay, Popeye, what does that mean? Right? I am? Well, I am. In other words, you're not. That stone idol that the Egyptians are worshiping, that's not either. I am. 
It's also talking about his limitless, like his, he, that he is, he's not bound by time. He's the beginning and the ending, right, and all this. But it implies that he is and we aren't, right? That's his name. His name is I am, and your name is you're not. Isn't that a wonderful thing to walk away with that this morning, learning that you're not God, he is. So hear him and listen to him and trust him and follow him because he is and you're not. Nothing else is. It means that God's relationship to his creation is above. It's transcendent. It's holy. He is above us. He is not us. Though we can know God to a degree, we can never be him. He is the high and lofty one in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 17. God is holy. He is perfect in wisdom. He has all knowledge from beginning to end. He knows when we sit and rise and when we think we are far off. He knows our thoughts, Psalm 139. He is the one that makes known the end from the beginning in Isaiah chapter 46. Nothing surprises him. Even suffering isn't off script for God. God knows everything. Uh Uh-oh, I didn't realize that was going to happen. He never said that. His purpose and will is a perfectly informed one. So he's perfect in wisdom, but he's also perfect in power. His purpose cannot be thwarted. Listen, you can have all knowledge and have this great plan, but if you don't have power, you might not be able to pull it off. Isn't that true? Someone might get in your way, step on your toes, prevent it from happening, not with God, because he has all power. Who is like our God? No one, because he's holy. Satan's power is not greater than his, and neither is yours. So when he has a plan, and he has decreed or determined that plan, it's going to happen. And who can get in his way? Nobody. We're bound to it, and not ours. His ways are not our ways, declares the Lord. The universe in Romans 1 testifies. We read this, to the power of God. You know that in Psalm chapter 147, he named every single star in the sky? Named them? That one's Charlie. You know how many stars there are? Trillions upon trillions, and they think that that's just our galaxy, and our galaxy is one among billions or trillions too? And he's got a name for all of them. Isn't that incredible? I can't remember your names. (laughs) He has all wisdom. He formed the mountains and measures their weight on a bathroom scale, Isaiah chapter 40. Well, not a bathroom one, but his scales. Imagine being able to measure the universe on your bathroom scale. That's what he does. He spilled the waters of the earth into every little nook and cranny of this globe. And the Bible says in Isaiah 40 that he holds all those waters in the hollow of his hands. God has unlimited power, unlimited wisdom, unlimited holiness. And you know what? He is perfectly present, too. There is no place where he isn't. There is no rock or tree that you can escape to where he is not there. The rocks and the trees are not him. But they cannot flee from his presence. He is everywhere all the time. He is not so transcendent that he's absent. He's always near. You know what it says in scripture? Where can I go from your spirit? 
Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and I settle on the far side of the sea, I go to the ends of the oceans, you're there too. Even there, now why is this comforting to us? Even there, your right hand holds me fast. Because he's everywhere, because he's powerful and wise and holy, He's there for us. And he's perfect in being. Number five. He has no beginning and no ending, and he does not change. He has no beginning and no ending. He does not change. He is who he is. Again, that name implies this. I am. Now, I was or I will be, that would, that would imply a certain changeability to God. And if God changes, we're in trouble. Because he could just decide that he doesn't want to make our science work anymore. And then our brains turn to dust. And the, skies fall, the stars fall from the sky and nothing works, you see? But he doesn't change his mind. He is not like in James chapter 1, the shifting shadows because he's the changeless one. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he says, I love you and I'm going to save you now, he means it a hundred years from now, in a million years from now, in a trillion years from now. He means it and he doesn't change. Because also he is perfect in his moral nature. Let me say it like this. He is perfect in love and righteousness. He is perfect in love. God's love is seen in creating all the things around us so that we know he's there, that he's powerful. God's love is seen in making us able to know that we even exist and that he exists. See? God's love is there most importantly and most impressively in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we rejected his love, God's love won us back in Christ. By grace through faith. Isn't that incredible? God is love. But he's also good and righteous perfectly all the time. Now, as Westerners, we don't like this one. Unless we're offended, then we want a righteous God. But if we're the offender, we don't want a righteous God. We want a forgiving one, don't we? But God being righteous means that he is not evil. He is not anything bad or corrupt. He doesn't lie. He doesn't kill. He doesn't murder, right? All these things. He's not deceptive. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't change his mind. He has your good all the time on his mind. He cannot be in the presence of evil except to judge it with perfect righteousness. Oh, and that's a tough one for us Westerners. But think about it like this. Every, every injustice matters to God. You see, if God is not just, if he is not righteous, then the, injustice, the injustices of our lives don't matter. They're arbitrary. No one's ever going to deal with them. We just die and go in the ground and turn to dust. You see, but if there is a God who is righteous, he sees. Oh, and don't you just know in your gut that you need a God who sees? That we can't exist without a God that's like that. We need a God who's righteous. 
as much as we scoff and cluck our tongues and hate the fact that, that there is someone that we'll be accountable to one day for every sin, deep in our gut, we want, we want a God that holds the universe accountable to its decisions. Because then it would just be mayhem. He's always good and righteous, and therefore he judges with right, just judgment. He has all knowledge, so his judgments are always true and correct. He has all love, so they're always done in love. He has all wisdom. They're all, they're all, he has all power, so he can execute it. See? He is always good and righteous, and therefore he judges with just judgment. He has set down a day, according to Scripture, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, that is Christ. So let me close with this. I'll say a few more things. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. To know God is man's chief end and justifies our existence. God is real, God is personal, and God is perfect. It matters what we believe about him. In Acts, he commands all people everywhere to repent. To the gods that, and what the, the context of that is the gods that we've made up. To trust in who he is and who, by, by who, he claim, who, who he tells us he is. For he has set a day when he will judge the world, right, by the man he has appointed. The justice and love of God are perfectly displayed in the cross of Christ. Before you get too offended about a God who judges, just remember that all of his judgment, all of his wrath, because he loves you, was put on his son, so it would never have to be put on you. And you can receive that this very moment by grace through faith and apply it to your life. You can escape what is justly coming to you by simple faith in Christ and be put back in God's good favor, reconciled to him. Can you pray with me, friends?